My name is Bird Lentil. You're listening to the Punks and Pubs podcast. I'm interrupting the start of this podcast. I think you should go listen to the punk rock band, The Day Jobs. The Day Jobs have uploaded music to SoundCloud. Soon they will have music on Spotify, Apple Music, and other websites. The Day Jobs sing about overflowing sump pumps, bird watching, rising home ownership costs, and abandoning your family to go out searching for cryptids. It's time to listen to our theme song. It's called The Day Jobs. Welcome to the Punks and Pubs podcast. My name is Liam Bird, and I hope my voice finds you well. Anyone who listens to this podcast will know I I believe that punk and politics go hand in hand and you shouldn't be afraid to speak your mind. All I'm going to say is that war crimes are war crimes and it doesn't matter if they're coming from a terrorist organisation such as Hamas or from a democratic elected government such as Israel. Killing people by association is a war crime. Weaponizing water and food is a war crime. Bombing hospitals or refugee camps, doesn't matter what's underneath it, is a war crime. This is not pro-anything. These are facts. I think at the moment, so many people are hurting. And I say that as someone from the UK. I'm not in Gaza. I'm not in Israel. However, I do have family in the region who are scared and they don't know what's going to happen. 
And I think that's the worst thing. No one knows what's going to happen, but we know what's happening now. So I don't really have anything that I'm calling for or asking for, because let's face it, this is a shitty little punk podcast. (laughs) But I think it's important that we do call out war crimes when they happen. I'm hoping most of you understand that the people who are suffering in Gaza at the moment, a majority of them are not the ones that crossed that border and did those heinous acts against those poor people who were just going to a festival. And I think that's also something that resonates with a a lot of us, that most people who listen to this podcast would have gone to a festival, but war crimes are war crimes. Anyway, that's all I'm going to say on the matter because I've kind of gone into a lot more than probably what I was planning on doing. Because, I mean, most of you are looking to escape, you know? At the very least, have me play in the background while you do something that's more important. It's okay, I get it. Anyway, let's talk about the actual podcast and ready for a, uh, a key change in tone. I have a remarkable individual whose story is nothing short of extraordinary. In today's episode, uh, we will find ourselves in a very busy bar in West London to share a drink and engage in a conversation that's been a kind of a year in the making. It's a long long podcast. I I, I haven't done a very long one in a long time and I was wondering if I was going to split up in two, but I decided not to. So let's crack on with the podcast. So my guest is no ordinary figure because by day he's a dedicated doctor but by night he transforms into a punk rock musician Uh, he is the frontman of a band called kill the icon my guest is dr nishan joshi who is an individual who fearlessly called out the uk government for their handling and distribution of personal protective equipment also known as ppe to the nhs staff He even took the government to court, marking a pivotal moment in the fight for healthcare workers' safety during the COVID pandemic. So in this episode, you will hear us dive into uh, loads of topics from his role as a whistleblower to his transformation on stage as a punk rock musician. Like I said, it's a long one, so let's crack on. Enjoy this. This is my chat with uh, Nishan. Cheers to you, man. Cheers, Cheers to you. Uh, Thanks very much, Leo. My, my pleasure, man. Thanks for reaching out. I know this has been a while in the making, but you've clearly yeah, got clearly got a very interesting story. <laughs> and one I do want to tell, but as I ask you one of my questions, I'm also very aware you're a musician as well. So you don't want to talk about your music. 
Yeah. And I feel like people want to talk to you because it is so fascinating about your background yeah. in, in medicine and then, then obviously COVID and then the shit that happened with that. Yeah. So we will, I promise, we'll talk about music and we'll talk about punk. Uh, yeah. But um, we'll, we'll start with this. Why not? This is uh, good enough for all for any. So we are currently in a beer garden in Hammersmith because every single pub is fucking busy. And it could be the case because we're in the darkest timelines. Everyone's just trying to drink their sorrows away. But in front of me is Nishan. How are you, pal? Very well, thank you, Liam. Thanks so much for having me. Pleasure. I mean, this so so people who don't know, uh, you're going to find out a bit more about your story, and I think people might even know your story, especially people in the UK, but may not actually know your name, but know maybe your face that's been on TV a couple of times. I hope they know my name rather than my face, because my face is is losing its best days. <laughs> my face has had its best days, maybe. Mate, you're like a wine. You're a handsome, <laughs> handsome man. What are you talking about? But... We're also going to talk about uh, your band as well, Kill the Icons, and we're going to touch on pretty much everything. But the first question really is, for people who don't know, you were one of the first, you're a doctor, yeah. and I, I probably should have called you doctor. <laughs> Please don't. Please don't. <laughs> it's going to attract some attention in this pub, <laughs> try to keep it down low. People uh, yeah. coming to me with their, their warts, and uh, you'd be surprised how many, how many strangers will pull down their, their underwear just uh, to show you something yeah some people will call you lucky be fair i'm looking at the wall behind you i am thinking you might actually need a doctor yourself because that wall is on the, the verge of falling down <laughs> <laughs> um, but yes yeah, so, so you were one of the first medical professions professionals to to come out about covid and raise the issue of personal protective equipment for your peers uh, or lack of yeah uh, and that gained let's just say a lot of coverage in the UK at the time and we will touch on that but what I do also want to talk about is kind of yourself and get to know you as a person so this is a punk podcast let's talk about punk music first yeah my understanding from from reading about you and understanding you are a child of uh, a family of immigrants who came to the UK from Uganda children of migrants immigrants refugees usually they're quite strict in their children because they've mm-hmm. gone through a lot of shit mm-hmm. and they're in a set, settled yeah, country yeah. and they just like get your head down do work yeah. don't talk shit and then you go oh by the way I found punk rock and it's just telling me to question everything and, and argue and ask why constantly I mean how, yeah. how did that go down in your family? Yeah so just small correction for benefit of my mum uh, my mum's side of the family came from Kenya okay and um, but also coincidentally in, in 1972 um, so my mum my mum and her family came from from Kenya and my dad's side of the family came from uh, Uganda in 1972 I know you discussed it quite quite a lot previously on your podcast with, yeah. with Chris Rigmore actually yeah. uh, which is quite interesting um but, and, and you're absolutely right. And part of the discussion that, that you had with, with Chris uh, uh, a few months ago was based on, well, look, you've got this immigrant experience and how, how does an immigrant actually become part of not just a punk culture, but just in a more broader sense, how does uh, an immigrant ingratiate themselves into British culture or to a- any culture, right? They've been displaced, they've been forcibly displaced as well. Um, so it's not like people have come here by choice all the time as, as well um, my own father I mean he came on a one-way ticket and he didn't know he was coming on a one-way ticket he, age 17 his dad sent him to, to the plane at the airport in Uganda 
and my dad thought that he was going on holiday to see family and come back a few weeks later. They said, when, when am I coming back? And my granddad said, you're not coming back. You're going to go there, you're going to stay there, you're going to settle there and you're going to go find a job and we're going to come when we can come in a few weeks or a few months or a few years. Fucking hell, that's pressure, isn't it? Yeah. And so that pressure actually it presents like a sort of anchoring effect for me as well because I know how hard my dad's worked. I mean, my dad ended up in, the, in a tiny flat on the first floor of a, a, a terrible dilapidated building in, in Tottenham Court Road in 1972 and he used to tell me how the windows would frost over and things like that. And once you understand just how much your parents have, have suffered that level of trauma, your first le- thought isn't really, okay, as you said, how am I going to kind of upend all of this? It's to believe your parents and trust your parents and an extension of that trust authority as well. And I think for a really long time in my life, even though I was very much into to rock music from my teens and I was playing bass guitar since I was about 16, 17, I was really, really into to rock music, really into punk music, but I didn't feel like culturally I ever followed through with it. I was just like a bit of a secret punk fan and used to enjoy having it in my ears. Um, and yes, then basically COVID happened and that was the trigger for, for turning things upside down for me. So before we get to the COVID thing then, going back to you enjoying rock music and secretly enjoying punk music, when you were listening to this, to this kind of music, who was, who was bringing it into your life? And also, were you one of those kids who just kind of listened to a song and just accepted the song? Or did you kind of go, okay, what's this song about? Let me try and unravel it. Because I'm guessing as, you, as you've grown up and you said you played bass, you, you've had an interest, a, a more deeper interest than just putting on a record and putting it in the background. I think to, to start off with, probably I wouldn't give myself that much credit, to be honest. Um, I, I have to give full credit to, to a man called Mike Sachs. We, our school had an exchange program with American students. So he came from, from Duke University and he was in his early 20s. And I was at the stage in my late teens when I, when I was starting to, to question a few things about life and growing up and things like that. And he basically had just an optional class, which was called like rock music and history of rock. I think that was what it's called. So it's basically like school of rock. That's basically what it's we the did. The original Jack Black. <laughs> yeah, it was really quite similar to that. So we would just watch documentaries about rock music and just movies about rock music and things like that. And then he would show us like a few rock songs that that, that he really liked. And he was just so cool. Just one of those people who you wanted to be like as well. Mm. Thinking like, how has this guy ended up in like quiet suburb here in London? Like he was he was really into Slayer. And he played bass as well and then within like a few months I thought okay I'm going to start listening to, to a bit more in detail and things like that so I'll, I'll go home and listen to the songs that, that he would recommend and, and that's basically how, how I started to develop an interest I was still really really studious really really academic by this time it had been decided for me that I was going to be a doctor by hook or by crook so creative avenues had pretty much been closed up to me so uh, it's credit to, to Mike Sachs. <laughs> so, so with that then, were you coming home like with like going to a record shop? Did, did you go to a record shop and bring record home? And No, actually, my, I think my life was so regimented around studying, to be honest, that it was really, really just not a thing for me to go to record shops. It wasn't like a, a, a sort of thing where I would go to, to rock shows or anything like that. I mean, my first proper concert by myself was, was probably about when I was 19 or 20 and it was right around the corner from here actually it was actually Wolf Mother at the Hammersmith Apollo yep. yeah funny enough we say that um, so yeah it, it really just wasn't a thing for me to, get, to go before I went to university it just wasn't a thing um, 
so I, there was just no creative avenue there wasn't much support at home for, for playing music loud or anything like that even when I was playing bass at home I wasn't allowed to plug in the amp or anything because I was too scared of disturbing people and, and I knew my dad would, would say knock that shit off let's, let's just focus on your what we need to do and then we'll do the stuff that you want to do and, and that sort of thing so I only ever played bass without an amp to be honest for, for, for a really really long time and that's how I started to, to write songs so did, did you have any siblings? Yeah, I have one younger sister who's also a doctor. Yeah. And, and did, she, did she have the same kind of mindset of study, 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 music is just something that's a, a bonus in life that I might get to enjoy all day in life? Yeah, absolutely. And I think we, we, we enjoyed and suffered from the same experience and, and the weight of expectation saying that our parents had genuinely suffered and been through so much trauma as well in, in their own lives. And our whole upbringing was about listening to stories about how much they'd suffered. And it carries a huge weight on your shoulders, especially as the firstborn as well. Um, and so our destiny had been decided quite early on, saying, look, we've been displaced from one place to another. And uh, really, once you know that your parents have been through that and there is a huge degree of expectation on, on your shoulders as well, then you kind of have to follow through with that. Anything else is a real, real departure and bears consequences, not just for yourself, but for, for everybody. Did you hold resentment against it? Because I can only speak for myself. Like yeah. the idea of not having music in my life yeah. until I was like nineteen or twenty, I, I I physically don't know what I could have done. Yeah. Because my my background wasn't about studying, and maybe, maybe that's where yeah. that's why I wasn't a doctor. But I I didn't have a background like with me. My my family didn't care about my studies. So I found I found my kind of way out of my town was through. Mm. I can I can't play music, but I'm knowledgeable about it. Yeah. Maybe I can use this in a different way. And it wasn't until I went to university I discovered, you know what? I can do radio. Radio. I yeah. know enough about music, but I know sorry, know how to to maybe interview or produce something. That's my way out. Yeah. You, you, sounds like you you kind of you've got this guy who's a teacher who's showing you this world, kind of like this magical world yeah. of like candy and corn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you, you, you're kind of stuck to, well, actually, no, like my family expect this. This is the way I need to go. Was yeah. you ever torn? And was there any resentment of, I, I just want to play my fucking bass again? <laughs> I, I don't think at that time when I was living at home, I, I faced... I, I didn't really have that sort of rebellious phase that a lot of teenagers go through. I'd say most teenagers go through, right? Everybody has a difficult phase of teenager. I didn't really have that because everything was kind of prescribed for me and I got to say, you are going to do this. And I was pretty content with the deal that I had and to be honest, the hand that I'd been dealt with in life. My future had been kind of planned out, saying, look, you're, you're becoming a doctor by this age. That means you can become like a consultant by this age and then you'll get married and have kids by this age and I thought that all sounds quite nice actually but I just wasn't actually exposed to to a world of anything else I just hadn't had that exposure so I didn't know there was a real alternative for me specifically I mean I saw other people going down different paths and things and it never really attracted me to be honest um, so my rebellious phase did come as a teenager it came when you were a doctor about ten, yeah it actually came when I was a doctor so let, let's talk about kind of I, I'm trying to go to I don't want to go straight to the doctor stuff because yeah. I, 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 again I think it's really important to get to know who you are yeah. before we get to what people might know you for and then sure. also talk about the music so at university 
Did you have a rebellious stage? Where about you? you I, where did you go to? Did you get a chance to leave your hometown? Yeah. So I, I, I kind of had my rebellious phase in, uh, in university. So I kind of, uh, I kind of messed up a little bit over here. Even though I got really, really good grades, I just kind of messed up at, at the final hurdle actually, um, and that's when I went through a very difficult phase actually, which was. Uh, kind of questioning my life decisions and after a long story cut short I ended up in Czech Republic because um, I couldn't get in anywhere here and it was a massive massive struggle for me and that's when I really started to question things and I ended up studying in Czech Republic for six years in a tiny town in the east of Czech Republic 100 miles east of Prague which is called Tradec Kralove nobody seems to have ever heard of it here <laughs> apart from the few Czech people that I bump into once every often and so how often. is your Czech? I, I can speak fluently just yeah. about still. I mean, I, like when I left, I could speak fluently because we had to learn a lot of it in Czech and speak to patients in Czech, speak to doctors and, and nurses in Czech. So I could speak perfectly then, but it's the sort of language where unless you keep it up every so often, you really forget. So I do lose my words now, unfortunately. As a corollary, I, I did learn a lot of Czech um, by going to the casino pretty often. But as part of my rebellious phase, I became quite interested in poker. Yeah. And basically the only people who played poker at the local casino were were these mafioso Czech people. And they were absolutely vile people. A lot of them had come out of jail and things like that. They were these big, big burly men, like roided up and stuff, like old skinhead type of people. And I'd be like this skinny, scrawny little kid from, from Britain with brown skin and definitely not feel welcome but when they found that I was a medical student and they just seemed to like warm to me for some reason I'm still not sure they seemed to warm to me and at one point I actually ended up even being a, an English tutor to to one of the, the mafioso guys daughters actually <laughs> so that earned me about five quid an hour in, in Czech Republic at, at some point so um, and it I, I ended up teaching, teaching them English. They ended up teaching me Czech. So my swear words in Czech, to this day, are fantastic. The rest of my Czech, not so good. <laughs> oh, you got to throw out a swear word. <laughs> uh, maybe I'll save it for the end. Okay. I'll, I'll, right. I'm cycling too many, too many now. Guy who was just seven when he went to his first rally. Surrounded by skinheads and bomber jackets. They watched Birth of a Nation and pledged allegiance to the flag. So proud as he looks up at his dad Say you're Danny, you're a young man You've got to be strong Danny, you're a young man What day you're full of all Danny was born into a world of hate His father said he was a big mistake His mother never showed him kindness so Danny confused in love with violence Say you Danny, you're a young man You've got to be strong So, so you kind of spoke about uh, being in an environment whereabouts you, your skin colour may not look like the rest yeah. of the people in that room. Yeah. Punk is predominantly white, always has been. And it is changing, I think, slowly for black communities. I think Asian and, and South Asian communities, lack of, still a lack mm. of. Going to rock shows or punk shows, was that something you were aware of? Or was it something that you just didn't take in because you're just going to watch Slow and you weren't really thinking about, like... Societal, uh, societal, economic yeah. uh, 
race in the in the crowd? I think I became more aware of it once I started playing seriously and, and going to more and more shows as, as well. Um, and basically, my my good friend who ended up becoming my my gig buddy to this day, we've been going to shows for years and years. I mean, we first met at uh, at a show in Bologna for a festival which is called Beaches Brew, and it's held right on on the beach in in Bologna. Most incredible incredible scenery to be honest um, and I went solo travelling there from Czech Republic one year and the only other person who I could hear speak English um, uh, was my now good friend called, called Ralph uh, and his friend Hannah and they were both black and we now go to, to gigs all over Europe too, we've since been and, and all over London as well and it's very normal that the two of us will be the only people of colour in, in the crowd is very, very normal. Um, and part of that has certainly made me feel... Uh, it, part of that was certainly the trigger for a lot of questions, actually. Did you ever feel uncomfortable? Like, at Sometimes, yes. Mm. I have definitely felt uncomfortable at shows, um, which quote-unquote punk shows, where you walk in and everybody's looking at you and it's very apparent that I'm the only person who looks like vaguely like me in the crowd. Um, and so, yes, I have felt definitely uncomfortable a couple of times in the last couple of years, definitely. Um, and I can't quite put my finger on why this happens at these shows in particular for these particular bands because they're good bands with, with good people and, and stuff, but... It's just a, a feeling that you get in your bones and mm. the looks that you get. They're very, very familiar and they're part of a, a wider context of sort of negative experience in, in a person of colour's life, actually. Do you think that's part of the issue then within, within punk? Because I, I think there's this trope that punk is really inclusive. And I do, th- but I don't think it's any more inclusive than any other music genre, if I'm mm. being honest. I, I, I think we like to play up on the idea of uh, everyone comes. Everyone's free to be. Yeah. Doesn't matter who you are. You, you're you're welcome. Yeah. But I don't think that is the case. Yeah. And do you think like as a by by being on stage and also being on the floor? Yeah. Do you think artists who have more of a platform talk about it a lot more? Yeah. Than than what they probably should. Or do you think that's too much actual weight on their shoulders to have to fix the issue? No, I I, I think it's basically. You've, you've just described the problem and the solution in, in, uh, quite neatly to be honest Liam I, I think it is incumbent upon artists who have found themselves with a degree of access to power um, and we're, we're literally in the shadow of the Hammersmith Apollo where Royal Blood are a very good example right now it's un- incumbent upon artists such as them to then lift up artists from marginalised backgrounds it's up to them to do a lot of the heavy lifting because actually a lot of their success is on the shoulders of artists of colour. Um, and so, yes, I would certainly urge, uh, urge all artists from traditional sort of backgrounds who've achieved some degree of success that you need to really look at yourself in the mirror and just say, you can't pull the ladder up for other people. You really need to be extending your generosities to be more inclusive and that for example just a really really simple example just think about who your supports are just really think about who your supports are if you played a hundred shows in the last three years and you've got zero artists of color in your supports i mean that's a bit ridiculous i mean i have done the the number crunching on this because at one point 
I, I did think that I was just being, you, everybody goes through a point where they say, am I being a bit too paranoid about this? Am I actually being discriminated against or is there something to this? I've crunched numbers for various like, big artists and things. And they, there's nobody like me on stages like Hammersmith Apollo as for, for supports for bands like Royal Blood. I'm not mentioning them specifically for, for, for tonight exactly, but um, it would be incredibly uncommon. And I'm sure if I ask you, name, name an artist who looks like me to support a band like Royal Blood, you'd have to think really, really, really hard. Mm. You'd have to be really, really, like, thinking really hard. And that's what... I want to kind of end in the next few years, ideally. <laughs> wow, there, there's a task. Wait, um, is it really a task? Is it really a task? For, I mean, you've been involved in the music industry for so long, right? I've been involved for a decent amount as well. I mean, is it really that tough? It sounds like a really easy thing to do. If I'm being honest, I don't think it's the artists. I think it's the bookers. I think a majority of the bookers are all white male. And they know what they know, and then what they know is why bands, if I'm being frank. And I don't know that many uh, LGBTQ plus buckers, I don't know many black buckers, I don't know many Asian buckers. I don't know that many women buckers. They're, They're all white guys. And I don't know if it's a case that they think, okay, if we're gonna put on a show that has equality across the board, no one's gonna come, so that means I'm, I'm losing our money. I don't agree with that, because I'm, I'm a big believer of, if you don't do it, how the fuck do you know? Yeah. You don't know. And I, like, I could name five bands who I know will kill it, who are all of uh, different gender, diversity, yeah. race, and they'll, they'll sell a show. Yeah. But the idea of getting them all at the same time is difficult. It's that argument of Glastonbury of, there needs to be more female headliners. Yeah. Glastonbury would come back and say, well, we'll put female headlines on if they sold more records. How can they sell more records if you don't give them more exposure? It's a vicious circle. And again, I think this comes down to bookers taking a chance on bands, not just seeing it as... Well, actually, no, I actually think you said it right. Do your headliner, and then your your undercards, bring a bit of diversity to your shows. and, And people would then find out oh, okay, I actually quite like this guy. And it's not because I like this guy because he happens to be uh, a person of, of Asian descent. Yeah. I like him because they're fucking good. Yeah. And, and that's the hope. And that, that's, that's why, for me, there's a band called King Prawn. I don't know if you're aware of Gold them. Who? King Prawn. I'm not aware of them. Okay, so King Prawn are an all-Asian scar, dub, punk band from, right. like, the 90s. Right. And if I'm honest, that was the first punk band I saw of colour, apart from Bad Brains. And, and they, they were like, fuck, this is fucking amazing. Yeah. And I went to their shows, and it was, it was the most diverse crowd I've seen. Yeah. And, and that's because there's people from, from, from uh, the community that they're, that they're from yeah. coming to those shows because they know they're going to feel welcome. Yeah. It's the same as, like, the Asian Dub Foundation. Like, when they play shows yeah. when in Nottingham, yeah. it's a diverse crowd. Yeah. And, and that's, for me, how you bring diversity into the scene is by having a diverse uh, bill on your stage but I well I, I mean look I, I completely agree with you but I'll also give a good example about this time last year we played a show at, at the Shacklewell Arms um, so we were asked to, to support by um, Club the Mammoth were the bookers for, for that show um, really good people behind that and Teenage Sequence was, was the headliner and they'd recommended myself and another band called Dog Violet. And we ended up playing a completely packed show. And it was the first show I'd ever been to where all three people were, all three headliners um, and front people were 
uh, from a South Asian background as well. And so we ended up drawing a really, really diverse crowd and it was completely packed out. And that was almost pr a proof of concept for me, saying Shacklewell Arms is a place where I've been countless times. And it's been one of those venues where sometimes I'll be the only person who looks like me in, in the crowd. Um, so we put on an amazing show, the crowd loved it. Since happily played more shows with Club the Mammoth as well, because they clearly believe in, in what we're doing as well. So there is definitely that, but I mean, I've spoken to lots of people in, in the industry in the past year or so, um, booking agents, managers. I think you're absolutely right. I think there, there is certainly a feeling amongst the punk, maybe rock indie sort of community say, oh yeah, we're rock, we're, we must be diverse by, by definition. We must be inclusive by definition. But I think there, there's more to punk than just wearing a safety pin. You need to actually be, it's a doing word. Yeah. You really need to be invested in it. You really need to commit and sacrifice a degree of yourself and say, I mean, it's not even taking a chance. Like if I were to blind test and just give you a record of, of 10 MP3s of different artists from Asian backgrounds, <laughs> I could guarantee you'd say, these are really ba great bands, I've never heard of them. And the qu first question you'd be saying is, why have I never heard of them? Mm. So that's one question to ask. But also, just coming back to the raw blood and booking sort of agent sort of thing, there comes a point in everybody's life, in any profession, where every single person, if you ascend throughout the, the industry, you're going to, degree, to gain a, a degree of agency and decision-making agency. Now, if Royal Blood wanted it that much, now I'll be really shooting myself if they have picked like an, an all-South Asian... <laughs> I don't think they have today, funnily enough. But, I mean, yeah... Uh, I mean, I certainly wasn't asked. <laughs> Otherwise, I'm, I'm cutting up pretty fine yeah, otherwise. Yeah. Um, but if Royal Blood wanted us that badly, they would have just asked their booking agent and said, no, you have to. And history is littered with loads and loads of cases with good bands and great bands recommending other bands and saying, OK, we've got to get this on one bill this year. If you're on a tour, yes, the London bill or the Stockport bill or the Nottingham bill you've got to get this band on at one of our shows, or even if not one of our shows, for whatever logistical impossibilities, get it on your mate's show and just give them a chance somehow. That's what happened for, for example, our, our Shaka Well Elm show last year as well. We were recommended by another band. It can happen, it works. I recommend other bands. If I can recommend other bands, I mean, I'm sure bands like Royal Blood, Sleep and Mods can as well. Well, we're going to come to Sleep and Mods later. Um, I mean, do you, do you essentially want then big established bands who, who have the connections to essentially kind of have a Rooney rule? Whereabouts? Do you have, a, a, a Rooney rule. A Rooney rule, yes, yeah, yes, yeah. Yes, so, so for yeah. people who don't know, the Rooney rule yeah, yeah. is in America, in sports, they have to uh, have a certain percentage of people of color applying for, sorry, have to have interviews with people of color uh, for, for, for jobs in, in sport and it's supposedly brought in more people of colour into sport yeah that's what you'd like to see in life I wish we didn't have to, to consider calling it a, a rule or anything like yeah. that I, I wish we didn't have to, to codify it I think it would be a nice thing to consider I think it would, it would be a nice thing to, to kind of sign up to voluntarily um, I mean if like I said if, if you are having a hundred touring supports over a period of a couple of years and this is based on my own, own experience I, w I wouldn't name and shame those bands in particular tonight I may do at some point in the, in the future if they have listened to this podcast and then choose to continue ignoring but 
re- this is the reality of it. I mean, we're just not getting a foot in the door. We're not getting a look in. And, and still, when I actually show our, uh, management and booking agents doing this blind test, I've done it with a few people, they say, oh, that's a great band. Oh, show me a picture. Sometimes what I've done is actually create an artificial intelligence. Just, just go to uh, mid-journey and just type in saying, average white male band. Absolutely. And I'll say, it's not just month for the sun. Exactly. Well, well <laughs> exactly. Um, so it will come up something approximating Mumford and Sons, maybe if it's a male band. Um, and I'll say, look, this is what the band looked like. What do you think? Say, oh, they're great. Why well, haven't I heard of them? Well, then I say, actually, you know, this is actually this girl called, like for a girl band, I'll say, this is a girl called Maya Lacani, who's, who's a brilliant Salvation artist in, in London. And so, oh, I've never heard of them. Hang on. So this artist who's played the Hundred Club, so I'm talking about Maya Lacani in in in, uh, in particular. She's been played on radio, BBC Radio, Radio X. She's played shows at the Hundred Club. Isn't that where you tell me that you're you go all the time and you scout all the time? Why have you not seen her? She clearly sounds fucking amazing. I've played all the all the shows that I needed to in London that I was told I need to, you know, oh you need to play Windmill. You need to play Shacklewell. You need to play a festival. You need to play Lexington. We played a sold out show there last last month. You need to play Oslo. We played that last week. All of these sorts of things, along with all of the normal rules that they asked me to do, when I've actually said, "Okay, homework is done," they say, "Sorry, who are you again?" Hmm. It, it seems to it seems to be consistent across the experiences which I've discussed with, with my other artists from, from similar backgrounds, actually. You, you can say fuck off, Liam, to this question. Can I ask why you decide to, to rag on Royal Blood and Sleep of Bods, but the bands that you're talking about, you're not willing to name? Uh, I think I, I do, but uh, I, I, I will name them, but they're in songs which are actually about to, to come out okay. in the next few months, which I, I'm happy to give you a sneak preview as well. I think... The a lot of the bands, and uh, uh, honestly, a, a lot of these bands I've engaged with with privately as well. I'm not here to to hang anybody, to be honest. Um, I think out of everybody, look, artists who are, are desperately clinging to status which they've they've newly achieved, I want to give everybody a chance as well. I think if you're an artist who's just made it last year, you've got a lot of shit going on. Uh, you're trying to sort out your life. I do try and give gentle reminders and look, a lot of people have engaged positively with, with me when I have approached them directly and look, I've, I've started a lot of conversations with management companies and booking agents directly um, by saying, sorry, you, you have di- diversity, inclusion, equality in, on your website, you don't have a single person of colour in your artist roster, mm-hmm. why is that the case? Um, and, and likewise with, with bands I've approached bands in similar situations and to their credit a few of them have actually said look actually this is the case um, we're definitely going to keep it in mind and some have definitely acted on it as well Is there a worry of burning too many bridges? Well there, li- there lies the, the, the big question right? Is it a question of burning too many bridges? There? Well it could hardly be worse than what I've experienced before I started to, to think about burning bridges. So either I try and some people say, okay, you burn your bridges. Really, what does that mean? That really means they've closed down routes of communication and said, actually, 
quote unquote, you're too difficult for us. Yeah. That doesn't mean that that the process was wrong or that the idea between, behind the communication was wrong. It just means that this person wasn't receptive enough. It means that the industry wasn't receptive enough. So part of this is actually being reasonable enough and for example approaching di artists directly approaching booking agents management directly and saying what is what is this behind it i think that comes before naming and shaming in, in fairness mumford and sons you've had 10 years i think one of you guys turned out to be a known fascist we can name we can shame comfortably used to sing it with a hard heart now they say it with a heavy heart they used to sing it with a hard heart now they say it with a heavy heart Heavy heart Heavy heart Heavy heart Heavy, heavy heart Well, talking about kind of Shaming and naming. Let's talk about what people might actually know you for. <laughs> so, so, how about that for a segue? Uh, so, for people who don't know, you all fucking know. 2019, the World Health Organization raised concern about a virus called uh, the uh, Corona in China. Uh, within a few months, it entered Europe. Italy was the first one to get hit. UK could literally see it coming because yeah. we were two weeks behind Italy. And we could see what was going through with Italy. We could see that there was clearly this virus that was that was going to come to the UK that had the potential to, to do real damage. Yeah. At that point, you were working as an A&E doctor. Yeah. In London? In Luton. In Luton. Yeah. And what was happening at the hospital? And what, what information were you being told about this potentially deadly, deadly virus coming yeah. so we were we were fed repeated uh repeated lines which were clearly like pr communications from nhs and the government saying uh, you could catch it in tesco you're equally likely to touch it catch it in tesco it's just the flu it's going to pass it's not going to affect us um but the thing is as you said i, I was an a and &E doctor so luton's quite a busy place travel wise so we actually see patients who've because we've got an airport there. Some people would say, it's the only good thing about Luton, I'm not one of the those. <laughs> um, but we get people coming from exotic places sometimes as well. Patients who've, who've come from, from China and then to Europe and then to Luton, they'd have fever and things like that. So I, I was seeing more and more of that during January, February, and, and certainly in, into March. And in A&E, I was the one who was volunteering to see those patients. I said, look, this sounds like something really interesting. I'm going to volunteer to, to see all of them. Um, and you had to volunteer because you actually had to see those patients in isolation to start off with in spacesuits in a separate room and you wouldn't be able to, to go back to your normal shift. You'd just be in complete isolation with that patient for like two hours or so. Um, and then, so I, I just, at some point in February, everything just started to change. One day I was in a spacesuit. The next day I said, you don't need to wear a mask if you just stand one meter away. And I was like, hang on. 
I'm not like a, phys, uh, a physicist or anything. I was about to say I'm not a physician. I'm definitely a physician. <laughs> yeah, I'm not a physicist, but I think I know how, how gas is spread and aerosol is spread. And this doesn't seem right. So I said, I'm, I'm going to check this out with, with a lot of my friends because I'd studied in Czech Republic. A lot of people come to Czech Republic from all over the world. So East Asia in particular and all over Europe, all over America. So I was able to keep in touch with them and keep, stay, keep a consensus. And my colleagues in Taiwan and Hong Kong uh, and Japan, they were saying to me, sorry, you're doing what? You're not wearing a mask and you're seeing these patients? People are dying here. I said, okay, that sounds re- something really at, at odds with what I've been told. And this is where the question we were discussing at, right at the start, right, about questioning authority. So one of the first times in my life I was really starting to question authority and question what I believe, because I'd always believed NHS guidelines, always believed the government to an extent I mean I knew that politicians are crooks and things but you, you kind of they don't want to kill you yeah I, I always absolutely believe that politicians even though they're stumbling fumbling idiots I don't I didn't think they were actually trying to, to harm us and make things worse but I then discovered a chap called Boris Johnson and exactly what he was doing in February 2020 and March 2020 and he was doing the exact opposite that I was I was hoping that, that he would do it and that's why I, eventually I decided to, to speak out. So you spoke out by, uh, my understanding, of DMing a, a Guardian journalist yep. and saying, FYI, yep. we have no PPE or yep. we have a bin bag which we have been used as PPE. Yep. People are dying on the wards. We are kind of cannon fodder yep. to a point. I understand that Luton Hospital like staff were dying like a woman a nurse who was pregnant quite yeah. high profile died from the hospital yeah. from from essentially lack of protection yeah. this virus which at this point we knew it was killing people yeah abs- absolutely I, I mean uh, um, the nurse uh, Mary Adjapong she passed away in, in April 2020 having caught COVID in, in March 2020 uh, we think she caught it out of the hospital but I mean honestly the stories that we could tell about that that particular episode and how powers try to suppress that story and, and things like that I think it, it, we could go on for a really really long time because that death in particular of Mary Adjapong who happened to be pregnant at the time her child survived and she leaves behind a newborn a two-year-old and her husband in a state of complete grief and she happened to live a few doors down from us actually as well the stuff that I experienced during that time was just unconscionable and the way that I saw powers um, and institutions behave towards her family her grieving family that will stay with me forever and that motivates me forever forever um, but yes March 2020 you're absolutely right I mean I really had to start saying at some point saying I'm being gaslighted and to be honest with, with you all of my a and colleagues were were feeling that they were in a similar situation saying I don't think something's right but you know life is too fucking difficult as a doctor as it is anyway in any we were so burnt out we were so burnt out um, and life was so difficult for us doing these 10-hour shifts four days in a row and just felt like we were in a constant washing machine to be honest it was really really awful 
Um, so a lot of people just didn't have that capacity to think about things um, in a broader sort of way. But because of my previous experiences in life, perhaps, it all just came to a head and said, I just said to myself one day, where, where, that's where, when I ask artists to look in the mirror, I say at one point I had to look in, my, in the mirror and, and actually put my career on the line. I had to talk to my wife and say, look, I want to do something which could really be a big risk for our family. My wife was six months pregnant at the time, in March 2020. I, I, I DM'd Carol Cowalder, who was a, an award-winning journalist for The Guardian. I said, look, I think this is happening. I messaged her on a Saturday evening. We went on the Sunday morning, a black sheep, black sheep coffee in Vic, uh, next to the Victoria station. And I said, look, I think we're actually heading for a tidal wave here. I think lots of people are going to die. And I think healthcare workers are going to die. And she believed me. And after 24 hours, I think there was a bit of machinations in, in The Guardian. They didn't want to publish it. And then they did publish it. And then it was published and literally the next day it was put up in select committee in front of House of Parliament by all people, Jeremy Hunt, yes. a man that I still have very little respect for. But in fairness, he brought it up and he, and he said, why, live on TV, he said, why does this doctor, Dr. Nishant Joshi from, from Luton Hospital say that he's not going to be protected? From then, like, if you look at the Google historical searches for, for PPE, from then it just became snowball. It, it became a big, big thing internationally. And within a few days, I was immediately persona non grata in, in my own A&E. But when I started to, to get some kudos was when people were saying, oh, my friend WhatsApped me from, from Zimbabwe. And he said, oh, we don't have any PPE either. That doesn't sound right. And so things really grew. And, and then that was the spark that lit a fire, which really spread across the whole world actually so before we start talking about the kind of repercussions of that how many times did you draft your dm to that journalist and also did you think the journalist would actually pick it up and actually run with it like were you hoping she wouldn't were you like part of you like please don't fucking do this like i know i've done my bit now yeah but please don't because this could fuck me up at the time, it felt that that was my last hope and my only option. And I thought that Carol was, was the best person to, to listen to me because she'd broken similar stories of things about Panama Papers and, and Facebook and, and, and things like that. She'd been really, really involved in breaking really, really big stories. And I really trusted her to handle me sensitively, especially as a whistleblower, effectively. Um, so I was, I'm not a person who typically gets stressed. But I did have a lot of questions running through my mind, Liam, I'm not going to lie. One was that my wife is six months pregnant. One was that if COVID for whatever reason blows out and just doesn't become a thing in UK at all, I'm going to be left holding my dick for the rest of my career <laughs> and nobody's going to want to give me a job. Yeah. And then I'm not, I'm all of that, and th this is going back to what we discussed at the start again. All of that um, career certainty, which I, I was afforded by being a doctor, by, by becoming a doctor, all of that would go overnight. And all of my parent sacrifices from 50 years ago would just go in the ether. And I would have not just ruined my life, but my wife's life and my family's life. And I would literally just have to take a minimum wage job. And that would be the rest of my life. No nice stuff ever. And my family would be understandably ashamed front page I, uh, to persona non grata within a few days if COVID hadn't hit but I was confident enough in myself and the bad decisions that the government were making that 
I was right and they were wrong, which takes a huge amount. That takes a huge amount to say, I'm the only person in the country who thinks I'm right and the government are wrong. Yeah, I mean, balls on you, man. Balls on you. Did you, was there any point where you were going to be just a source? Or were you quite comfortable giving your name and, and, and saying, like, and essentially, like you said, putting yourself yeah. out there as the guy yeah. who's going to be spoken about in Parliament, yeah. who is going to be possibly attacked by your peers? Yeah. And let's face it, the medical profession is just as kind of uh, uh, politicised as any other profession. I, I've got a friend who's an orthopedic surgeon yeah. and on a side gig, I used to do a load of his fucking little conferences and I saw like the networking that was going yeah. on and there was a point of it wasn't actually how good of a surgeon you were, yeah. it's who you knew. Yeah. So you already know all this shit. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't really know how to ask this question. It, like, Was what? I considering being anonymous? Yeah. Um, I considered it for a flicker but then look I examined really carefully the history of when big moments are made and I knew that anonymous stuff really just doesn't go as far Um, and Carol herself said quite quite clearly look if this is anonymous it's just not going to get a huge pickup if you want to make a difference you have to put a name and a face to it and I said that's what I'm going to do it was my idea but I said, I'm going to put my name and my face to it. I believe in this. And if I'm wrong, then I'm wrong. If I'm wrong, I actually thought it would be good for the country. Yeah. Um, so I wish I'd be wrong. But actually, I was so confident. I said, I'm actually going to go all in here, put my name to it, put my face to it. And whatever may come, will come. But I, trust, I trusted my own decision making. I trusted the history of, of, I really, really thought a lot about it stressed a lot about it and I I made that decision to put my name and face to it because it went from people not even knowing the words PPE to everyone all of a sudden knowing PPE and what it is and what it's about so so that's gone out I'm guessing you're getting looks at at work particularly from (laughs) upper management oh (laughs) oh so like you're going to get comms departments telling you shut the fuck up what you're doing you're going to get uh, management who probably don't even know about medicine or medical but know Correct. how to run a business uh, I, I did quotes there absolutely so, so so like did they make you feel welcome did they try and push you out the door absolutely yeah absolutely and look not to go on about it but literally if, if I was going to detail every single thing that somebody a, a higher up told me during that time would be a really, really long time, and you would be horrified by it. Maybe I'll outline a brief couple of examples. That time when, that day that the Guardian article went out, um, I, I was actually on night shift, so I was starting night shifts. We'd driven from my parents' place in London, and we'd driven up to, to Luton. So my wife was six months pregnant. She wasn't in a really good state to drive, but I was so nervous and so shaky after, after that, that came out. Because I had a WhatsApp from an A&E consultant saying, just saying, you shouldn't have done that. <laughs> so I, I just thought, fuck, 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 yeah. fuck, fuck. So I was physically, I was really shaking like a leaf. I was just thinking, have I completely fucked my life? Sorry for the swearing. <laughs> um, but it, I, I really, really was worried. So my wife drew, drove us up while, while we were, I, I was just shaking in the patch and just see. Um, and I started my shift at 10, 10 p.m. at night in Luton Hospital. 
and there were about 10 of us starting that shift 10, 10 doctors and we were giving like a, a, um, a um, like a, a pre pre night shift meeting by the consultant and everybody was, I was like a leper in that room I really was just people looking at me and they're like Ugh. I wouldn't have done that shit if I was you. <laughs> and they were just waiting to see what the consultant was saying. And she was like, okay, so this patient in bed A1, uh, he's like this, and then you have to do blood for this one. Okay, yes, okay, okay. Uh, Dr. Joshi, would you like to just come upstairs with me for a second? <laughs> <laughs> I literally, my heart just sank, and it literally fell at the end of one of these movies where somebody's just taken away to be shot in the back of the head by like, a mafia boss. It really, really felt like that. I could sense the pity on my, my doctor friend's faces. Um... And then she went upstairs and she told me, look, they tell us that you can, you can catch it just at Tesco's. You're more likely to catch it at Tesco's than at A&E. And I said, hang on. You think I was born yesterday? I really told her. And that came to an impasse. And then, yes, the communi- communications people were the worst people because they were the least knowledgeable and they commanded the most power. And they called me um, at all hours, basically, saying that I, demanding that I stop interviews like by the time Jeremy Hunt picked it up I was then asked by like BBC Radio every day BBC TV Five Live Adrian Charles every single outlet in the world wanted an interview with me and communications department told me in no uncertain terms do not do this I carried on doing it because I said look we're going to have hospitals in the car park now it's going to be a disaster if you, if unless I tell people and they're like oh okay but just no I'm not really happy about this and I said I'm past the point of caring about you, so I'm going to do what I feel like. And there was one interview in particular where with um, BBC East of England had done a TV interview with me, and I said, look, this is the situation, everything is really shit. The communications directors for the hospital had phoned the journalist, BBC Look East, and said, pull this interview. And because they they irritated that journalist so much, they said, instead of running it every hour, they're going to run it every 15 minutes. So it's a good example of how a journalist can actually just help things along. Journalists were really good through that part of time to us, actually. It really, really did help a lot of stories come out. but yes, I was really made to feel like I was given threats that I would be referred to GMC by senior doctors and things like that. I went through hell. I really did go through hell. This is a making light of the situation. Was there any point where about during those interviews, like, oh yeah, and by the way, I've got this band. <laughs> 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 <Yeah>. <laughs> Deal with that then on a personal level because, yeah. like, 
no one's going to be in that situation who's listening yeah. to this whereby you, you become enemy, enemy number one not only by the politicians who are trying to shut you up because yeah. essentially you are shining a light on their inept yes. ability to, to actually get PPE yes. but then by your peers who you I'm guessing before that were like we're in this as a team yeah. like we're, we're doing this because we want to protect patients and then you're like I'm trying to protect yeah. patients by talking about like and and my peer, I'm trying to protect you. Yes. Like, how how did you deal with that mentally? Like, did you yeah. seek help? Like, how? Fuck, man. I mean, I would have caught up in a ball and just done. <laughs> it'll blow over. Fine. There was a lot of pressure, but before I'd spoken to Carol and the guard, before the Guardian piece had gone out, I spoke in a lot of detail with, with my wife and saying, look, if this happens, this is what's going to happen next, and they're going to be lots of repercussions for our family people like extended family are going to listen to this and they're going to tell you your parents so you have to tell them first you have to break the news to people before it happens um and you have to kind of get ahead of the internal family sort of stuff and the internal fa- fam- uh, friends sort of stuff if we can get the family and friends on board our life is going to be a lot easier so we did that and some people really didn't understand what we we're doing even some of my best friends said don't do this um and it was really, really challenging. But I think more than anything, my relationship and my trust and our integrity between myself and my wife really endured. And we said, no matter how much shit, no matter how much flack we're going to get, we're going to stay through it together, holding hands and face the consequences. I'm, I'm going to protect her as best as I can and we're going to make this work. And she looked me in the eye and she said, yes, we're, we're going to get through this together. And she was a pregnant doctor. The easiest thing for her, to, she was about to go on maternity leave. The easiest thing for her to be would be like, look, I'm about to go on maternity leave anyway. Why don't we just ride this out at home? Um, but to her full enduring credit, she trusted me and I trusted her. And we just got on with it. We got on with the job that we needed to do, but didn't want to do. So you then went, this isn't enough heat. You know what? We'll take the government to court. Yeah. And yeah. we'll try and sue the government. I mean, yeah. what the fuck? I mean, how do you even go from doing that? Yeah. And like, you, you kind of got vindicated by essentially yeah. the government saying, okay, yeah, we'll stop ramping up PPE. We'll, we'll start bringing in actual stuff that's going to save the people yeah, who yeah. are doing their jobs. Yeah. So how did that happen? Um, so basically in for a penny in for a pound <laughs> um, so there was a, a group of doctors who'd, who'd previously taken government to court for for other things and, the, and they said look I think this would be once people realised that the PPE issue, issue was a really big issue and people started to give me a lot of sorts of positive attention saying look I think what you did was really brave actually and maybe we shouldn't take it a bit further maybe we should take it a bit further and one idea from a group of doctors was saying maybe we should take the government to court um, and it gained a lot of backing really quickly and we were able to crowdfund about £70,000 which paid for lawyer fees um, who to the credit were, were actually really good and we ended up saving hundreds of lives surely if not thousands worldwide yeah so we're going to move on now to, to your band because I think we've spoken about this enough but at the moment the, there is a, a review going on about COVID have you been invited to take part in that and do you think that people in government and people middle management of the NHS should be held for manslaughter charges 
moving forward if the review states that they should? Uh, well, I haven't been invited and I can understand why I haven't been invited because I did take the government to court and I could understand how somebody might think that quite polarising and quite maybe somebody would say you want to get balanced views from people and we would obviously go into the biased views even though that it's not technically biased it's just that we've just made a series of really educated decisions and and so we, our conclusion is is quite clear the government stuffed up really badly and the government cost a lot of lives um, I would certainly like accountability and justice um, I think probably something like manslaughter is probably over I, I never really thought about it that far, to be honest. Yeah, maybe I have to think about it a bit more. But I think certainly those who had the keys to, for example, the PPE drawers, maybe literally and figuratively, um, and then chose not to listen and chose to gaslight us instead. Um, most notably, for example, it was a fellow doctor, actually, Dr. Jenny, Henry, Dr. Jenny Harries, who was then promoted to health of, of Public Health England. She was head of, promoted head of Public Health England during the pandemic. She said in early April 2020, we need to have an adult conversation about PPE, which to me and my wife, which is the most gaslighting thing we've ever heard. And for you to be a doctor and say that sort of thing kind of typifies the attitude that we were faced with in spring of 2020, which is people who weren't seeing patients, people who were making decisions about doctors without seeing COVID patients. Nobody dressed in, 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 put in on the on space suit like I did. Um, all these guys like Boris Johnson, Jenny Harries, Matt Hancock, they'd never seen a patient in their life. So how would they know? And they didn't listen to us. They gaslighted us and tried to do the most politically expedient thing, which at the time was to appease, for example, the pub sector and the entertainment industry and things like that. And they just didn't want to dig a hole for themselves economically. And they ended up digging. Instead of digging a hole, they, digged, they dug a, a ditch. Um, so yes, they should all be held responsible and accountable and I wish that there would be more than just words. I, I wish that they would just be banished from public life. Ice caps are melting! Everything's burning! City's on fire! I feel just fine! It's 103 degrees! So, 2020, not a lot going on. You're only, you're only kind of on, on papers and newspapers and taking the courts, uh, taking the government to court, and then you go, you know what, fuck it, I'll start a band. <laughs> so, kill the icons of court. Yeah. It's, it's yourself and two others. Who are the other two others? Yeah, so it, it, it actually started off as uh, myself and, and a drummer. Yeah. Um, and we, we'd already played in a band together called The Palpitations which is like a, a post-bunk band based on like Interpol and Radiohead those sorts of bands and we'd been going for a good few years and we're actually building like a, a good head of steam and we were releasing our debut EP March 2020 
which was just the worst time ever to release an EP. And in the end, myself and, and Tom, who was the singer and guitarist in that band, um, he's a doctor as well. So he's one of the people who really, really supported me during that time. Um, and I'll never forget the, the support that I actually did receive from people because it was so unfashionable for a very short period before it became very fashionable to become friends. Um, we said, look, we're not going to get a release campaign out for this and life is so shit right now. We don't know if either of us are actually going to survive till the end of this. Or how. So we've recorded three songs. Let's just put them out as, as an EP. And so we, we just burn that to be honest we put we put that out um, so we're in that band called the palpitations and then by the time about july 2020 came i was just getting so frustrated because we won't be able to we weren't able to to play with the palpitations anymore and we we knew that live kicks just wouldn't be a thing for a very long time so i thought oh, i've just got so much pent-up energy and so many things i want to say um, so i said look i've always been inspired by bands like death from above and ironically, we keep on talking about Royal Blood, but I did think of a band called like Royal Blood and thought, well, they make it seem a lot of their riffs are really easy, and I think that style is very easy to replicate. So, if Royal Blood can do it, I think I can give it a good go as well. Um, so we started with me playing bass and uh, my drummer playing drums. So you decided to start a band when people can't play live music. Yeah. Were you in UK at this time, or was yeah, it a yeah. case so, of playing over Zoom? Or oh no, I, I, I was in I was in London, um, and staying staying with my uh, living pretty close to my drummer, also down the road from Hammersmith. Yeah, um, and we said I think the rules then were we're all like kind of up in the air and changing every few weeks and things like that. But we managed to. It, it was reasonable for us to have like two in a room, but not four in a room. We 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 surmised that, um, so we tried. Uh, a, a little bit as a, as a two-piece and we we really enjoyed it and I was able to kind of replicate the, the Death Room Above 1979 riffs that I'd always really, really wanted to the big bass riffs like really distorted stuff that I really wanted to um, but I was also terrified of, of singing again because I'd never seen a frontman look like me so being a frontman was never, ever, ever on the cards even for palpitations even though I can play guitar very fluently and I write all the songs on guitar um, I always chose to be a bassist and not sing, even backing, because I just wanted to be the guy in the corner. I felt it was my role to make everybody else look good, to mm. be honest. So at what point did you decide, you know what, we're gonna, we are going to be unapologetically political. We're going to talk about yeah. issues that maybe might piss off our peers in the music <laughs> industry. At what point did you go, no, actually, this is, this is what I actually want to sing about and this is what I want to write about? Um, so it, it was part of the the origin the genesis of the band itself actually so part of the reason itself was just to say i've understood so much about taking the government to court and how to make change in society because by july august 2020 ppe had been started to get like good supply and people understand hope people were understanding doctors were dying nurses were dying we managed to get a lot of stories out in, in the press i was doing a lot of work with families who'd been bereaved by covid as well uh, especially healthcare workers so I was feeling the, the trauma with them and I said as part of the, the legal action what I was realising is that you can't just do legal action by itself you actually need to have a cultural arm to it as well there needs to be a legal arm there needs to be a cultural arm as well um, and they both need to work hand in hand so as part of that I thought well, historically bands like The Clash Dead Kennedys who I take great influence from 
have done things during times of political uprising and turmoil. And I think we need, the country deserves a soundtrack to that. So it was kind of designed as a soundtrack to 2020, which was just absolute chaos. And then obviously with Black Lives Matter and things like that, life became political and very sharp for a lot of people. So you've named three bands so far who I would associate with with the punk community, so The Clash, Dead Kennedys, Death From Above. Were you discovering these when you were kind of going through your, your angry phase? <laughs> uh, and, and was it a case of like, oh shit, okay, there is this band talking about like holidays in Cambodia. Yeah, yeah. And like being really fucking political. And, and then you've got The Clash, we're in Hammersmith, White Man of Hammersmith, yeah. where people may have misunderstood I think it. Even, even almost... Isn't the Palais almost literally right next door to where we are right now? What used to be, yeah, it's just across the road. Shit. Yeah. I mean, no no place is now open, unfortunately. Uh, yes. They're all kind of not out. But yeah, I mean, like, th- those kind of bands who I would associate with highly political, but yeah. also can kind of write a good pop song at the same time. Yes, yes, like, yeah. So were you discovering those kind of bands when, when you were thinking about, okay... I want to create this band that is going to be political. Yeah. What other bands can I kind of take inspiration from? Or were you already kind of knowing know of these bands already? I think I, I'd known them from, from the time that my, my mentor and tutor, Mike Sachs, had taught me in, in school, to be honest. And my time in Czech Republic, I, I had a lot of free time on my hands as, as a medical student as, as well. A lot of free time, just because the place that we were in didn't really have any distractions. There wasn't much that you can get up to. And so I spent a lot of my time listening to, to music, but I'd always just parked it at the back of my mind and say, oh, those are great bands, those are nice, shame I can't see them. <laughs> and I never thought that I'd be able to put it into to practice, to be honest. So it was just a, a kind of happy coalescence of, of all of my life's experiences that summer 2020, I was able to start Kill the Icon. And it was just, that's why it feels really, really pure to me. And it feels really, really genuine. Like, you don't have to put anything on. It really is just coming from straight from my heart. And it's like my life's work. How do you then balance that with being a doctor? I don't. <laughs> You're a doctor, which is we spoke about on the way here. Like, it's probably the most unforgiving job to actually try yeah. and have a band, make it established and, and, and make it into something whereby you are happy with. Yeah. I mean, how, do, how are you balancing that? And also, how... How was your wife allowing you, and I say allowing you, to go out, play these shows, come back, be husband, go to work, make money, come back, practice, write your songs, go find gigs? I mean, how are you even balancing this? And is it, and do you see it as a realistic opportunity to actually make it a touring band? Or do you not see it like that? Uh, Good questions. I think it's a work in progress as to whether it's financially viable. It, it can only be financially viable if, if I give it a go ultimately. Um, I think we are on the path to looking at being financially viable. I mean, as a pleasant surprise, I recently got my first PRS check and I thought, whoa, that actually changes things. That means that I can actually afford to buy a new set of T-shirts and things, which I've been wanting to do. For it. it means that I could actually afford to pay for my new bass, which I've literally been playing with the, with the words like Fender Squire for for years and years and my producer keeps on saying why are you bringing that piece of junk in and I'm like well at least you can't afford to have like one of those nice classic fenders and uh, things and even the one that I bought was off Gumtree and a huge huge risk to buy <laughs> but I mean back of the truck don't ask literally questions. that sort of thing yeah, yeah. but it, it's worked out okay I literally just got it last week but um, my wife allows me and she encourages me actually she encourages me 
and I think it's really important to, to make sure your family are, are involved in this as well, especially if your wife or your life partner as well. So she makes sacrifices for me. And we've got two young kids as well. We've got a three-year-old daughter, an eight-month-old daughter as well. Um, you fucking but, love trouble, don't you? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, but look, it, I always say, if you, if you have a passion, then you will find a way. And look, my, my wife during 2020, she was phenomenally active as well. And I always supported her. And we made that promise to to each other that we'd always support uh, one another she plays table tennis as well and she plays it to an international level in wow, fact okay. so she spends a lot of time uh, training for, for that and I mean we, we had a tournament she had a tournament uh, in July uh, in Guernsey and so for that I needed to take care of the two kids and do all of the babysitting and all of the, the dadding and things like that which which is not straightforward but we need to find a way to be completely devoted to to meal for, for that period of time and the period leading up to it as well so we each make sacrifices and we're both really really happy with life and knowing that we we have to find out our own passions and continue to explore them and we want our daughters to kind of continue in the same mould as well I, I don't think your your life has to stop once you have kids. I think um, it just evolves a little bit. So while I have given some stuff up um, with each successive kid, I suppose, <laughs> um, thankfully music is one of those things which I've actually been able to take more time and spend more time on, actually. I mean, we've gone way over what I normally do. So <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. I'm so sorry. No, no, it's my fault. Yeah, I, I, you've got a fascinating story, man, so I'm very happy to tell it. Uh, but before we're wrapping up, I have to kind of talk about... Uh, Nottingham owns Sleep of Mods. Yeah. What's your issue with them? <laughs> <laughs> Look, uh, I'm, I've literally just recorded a song, which, okay, first, first, uh, first listen, I suppose, of the song. It's called My Best, Friend's, My Best Friend Thinks the, That Sleep and Mods Are Edgy. It's not about Sleep and Mods directly, but I will say that I have taken issue with Sleep and Mods, and even though I haven't, like, contact them directly they actually blocked me on blocked me on twitter completely like quite out of the blue actually i don't think i said it like much to them certainly not from like a um a rude point of view and certainly as i said I'm, I'm not in the business of being rude to artists of like hanging people i'm actually in the business of trying to educate and and kind of dismantle hierarchies and structures and things like that so they blocked me whether it's by accident or misclick whatever fine I did take issue with one of their tweets maybe last year so we're talking maybe 2022 I think I obviously can't see their Twitter feed anymore so I, I wouldn't know <laughs> but it did say quite specifically in Police for Mod's own voice saying protest does not change anything what's the point point?" I thought hang on you guys are positioning yourself as a punk band and you complain about the Tories Yet being anti-protest is the single most pro-Tory thing that you could possibly dream up. And I think if you actually take the time to tweet that as, as, a, as a punk band or as a rock band, while singing about the things that Sleeper Mods do, you should be the most pro protest people in the whole world. And you should be listening to people from marginalised backgrounds who need to protest. Because ultimately... Who doesn't need to protest? People who have it made in life, the establishment, people who've had successful music careers and who sell out venues like the Hammersmith Apollo. You do not need to, to protest. 
your life is made. What you need to do is not pull up the ladder for people who need a voice. You need to actually pass the mic to people. And that's why I say things like enabling enabling people to protest or actually saying, okay, why is a band like Kill the Icon positioning themselves as a protest bunk band and calling out things like our tweets? Maybe we should investigate that a little bit more rather than actually just, rather than passing a mic, just shut it down completely. Because actually, the funny thing is, Liam, loads of people have said to, uh, to me over the past few months, you know who you would get on really well at the stage on? <laughs> Sleaf and Mods. And I'd be like, great. I have no route of contact to them now. But if I'm honest, <laughs> my, 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 my friends who have told me, I know who you would get on with. They're just a bunch of cunts. And I've never liked them. Like the people who go, oh yeah, you really get on with this guy. And I meet them. I'm like, how little do you think of me? <laughs> like, you think I would like that guy? Anyway. Um, so for people who want to know and find out, let's go with that question. People who want to you're know, you're going to love our next song. There, okay, <laughs> great, great. I thought you you kind of positioned the tone of that as saying you're a big Stephen Mods fan. No, no, I was no. like, uh, okay, uh, be careful what I say, but I, I think you'll really appreciate our next song. No, I, I just want to support the brothers from my hometown. You know, it's their, their kind of their kind of sporting mentality. Um, yeah. So people who are listening and might want to find out more about the band. I mean, how do they go about doing that? Is there physical copies? You spoke about merch. Is that possible? I mean. What can people do to support? Yeah, so everything's available on, on Bandcamp um, until that goes down under. Maybe. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's gone like, fucked. Bandcamp has just gone. Like, uh, yeah. So that's changed in the last few days alone. Uh, so until that, that changes, uh, we're available on killtheicon.bandcamp.com and um, Instagram, Twitter. If you search Kill the Icon, you won't you, you, uh, you won't miss us. And we play loads of shows as well. So... Uh, yeah, uh, you'll you will find us at Kill the Icon somewhere or somehow. And I will also say we've evolved from a duo. We now a quartet. We added a, a synth player, a producer and synth player, Ian Flynn, and we've also added a second drummer. So we're now a double drumming band, and we played a couple of shows. And it's the most fun and loud thing ever, and it's the best thing I've ever done. Uh, sorry to my family. <laughs> we'll, we'll put links up in the episode description and all that kind of fun jazz so let's end with this question I try and ask everyone <laughs> do you like that fun jazz I don't know why you <laughs> um, I don't know why you laughed what's, what's, what's no I, it's just I, I was thinking like a question you asked me before uh, saying um, about what was it like to go up against everybody with the government and stuff that felt like nothing until I actually went up against promoters and things saying, actually, we're a double drumming band. And they're like, how the fuck are you going to do that? There's no way you could pull this off. There's no way you could pull this off. Yeah, so you pretty much a <laughs> sound technician's worst nightmare. Literally. Like. Although I'll definitely shout out uh, Mark from the Oslo did an amazing job just last week. I, and our sound check technician at the Lexington as well for a couple of gigs so far. Just like an absolute dream. I appreciate my, uh, sound technicians. Always buy them a beer. Always buy your sound technician a beer or two. But I mean, is that because they lucky you go, fucking hell, two drums? Two fucking drums. I've got to deal with this shit. And then they grumble back to their little sound desk. And, and, and the setup is just unholy. And the miking of the drums and things like that is just like, uh, where do you fit stuff? Where do you fit stuff on stage? It's been uh, a challenge. Yes. Sound technicians are fun. <laughs> Same as lying technicians. Weird, weird bunch of people. Um, so yeah, we're gonna we're gonna wrap up with a question I try and ask everyone. So time, money, is not an issue. Who are you trying to get in contact with to have a beer? Super mods. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, well, 
I would have to bring back somebody from from the from we're digging beyond. We're digging them up. We'd have to bring somebody back. I think it has to be Anthony Bourdain. I think he's he's been such a big influence culturally on me and such a big influence on my life and how I want to be with people as well. And this isn't just as a musician, this is actually as a doctor as well, taking the deep and rational interest in people as, as well. I think taking the time to understand them. If I was to boil down medicine to one thing, it would be taking the time to understand people in front of you. And I think that's something that Anthony Bourdain did so fantastically well. And when we talk about communication, I think it was just a master communicator. And he managed to do it through food. I'm trying to do it a little bit through the music as, as well. And he's he's influenced so much of our music as well. And um, we wrote a song about him, actually. It's called Handily Bourdain. And um, yeah, so definitely raising a glass to Anthony Bourdain. I think he'd be the most fascinating person to, to eat with. But not a nice restaurant or a nice pub. It would have to be like street foods. a street food cart somewhere in the most random, shitty-looking place, and then we would both be really, really happy. So that's you and me both. So Anthony Bourdain, when I started this podcast, I had a list of 10 people I wanted to talk to. Yeah. And Anthony Bourdain was on the list. And I've got a friend who works at CNN quite high up, and my plan was the year that you unfortunately committed suicide, I was going to really try hard to get Anthony Bourdain on this podcast. And I'm <gasps> wow. devastated I didn't go earlier just so devastated because as you said the, the guy is a great communicator like you yeah. don't go all over the world obviously you've got producers and people like that who are helping you but like the moment you turn the camera on like he is so relaxed around people and he had such a passion for music like yeah. his passion was punk rock and yeah. food and the, and the guy was just fucking amazing to me like if you, li- if you listen to him talk about music on other podcasts yeah he's so passionate about it yeah. I would love the opportunity to spend half an hour in his presence and speak punk for that fucker but he's one of the few people that I mean you hear celebrities die and stuff and you're kind of numb to it almost he's one of the few people I was eating lunch in the canteen and somebody said oh he died and I was like they said it so casually and like, it was actually like a punch to the gut and you say about like it really deeply affected me I actually went home and actually cried a little bit because I thought actually like somebody who seemed to have it all in life took his own life it seemed just absolutely it's still just a huge thing actually and um, I rewatched all of his parts on Unknown series during the pandemic as as well and just absorbed every every little part of that one of my favourite bits was when he went to Nashville he seemed to be great friends with um, Queens of the Stone Age yeah. and and the theme tune for Parts Unknown is a Mark, Mark Lanigan song mm-hmm. um, and I think he, he hung out with, with Queens of the Stone Age in that episode um, and um, um, Alison Mosshart of The Kills as well just like just everybody is so cool just <laughs> like just one of those things where well all we can do is well I say in the song itself is like raise a glass to to Bourdain yeah bigger Bourdain man uh, that's a miserable way to end this podcast so tell me your we're celebrating words. we're celebrating we're celebrating oh, okay. we're celebrating uh, okotu, which means thank you for your kindness and listening to this podcast thank you so much buddy that was really good <laughs> thank, thank you so much, much Liam all the best
thank you so much uh, to Nishan for giving up so much of his time talking to me. Uh, he's a, he's just fascinating. I could have spoke to him for for, for much longer than than what I did. Go and support his band, Kill the Icon. You can find out how you can do that via the link in the episode description of this podcast. But you can also just Google, like, it's always there. Go do that. Uh, thank you also to Bert and the people of The Day Jobs for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. Again, if you'd like to know more about that band, Google them. Or you can click the episode description of this podcast. If you are in a band or if you do something that is sort of DIY and you want free sponsorship on this podcast, just drop me an email, punksandpubs at gmail.com and we'll get something sorted. Uh, that's it for this episode a bit of a weird one let's face it but I hope you did enjoy it I was away a little longer than I expected but I hope to be back soon enough than you expect till then stay safe and if you go into a punk show and you see someone fall down you pick them right back up again till next time bye bye proximity to whiteness in proximity to punk